This episode is brought to you by CrunchFirm, a full-stack finance, accounting, and CFO advisory partner focused exclusively on VC-backed startups. CrunchFirm steps in as a hands-on CFO for their clients and serves as a one-stop shop, taking on bookkeeping, back office, tax, cap table management, financial modeling, and fundraising support. If you are a founder or know a founder of a fast-growing startup looking for a best-in-class partner for these crucial services, get in touch with the team at CrunchFirm by emailing hello at crunchfirm.com. Listeners also get the first month free. Hello, and welcome to The Consumer VC. I'm your host, Mike Gelb, and on this show, we talk about the world of venture capital and consumer-facing startups. If you're a founder of a B2C business and currently fundraising, I run a private newsletter where I share companies to past and future guests of the show that I think are interesting. If you'd like to apply to be on the newsletter, head over to theconsumervc.com slash startup. Hey everyone, this episode is not your typical episode. This is a few snippets from David Goldberg's AMA session a couple months ago. David is a managing partner at Corrigin Ventures. Unfortunately, I only have David's responses to questions that other folks asked him on the day, so I recorded myself asking the questions. I thought this should be shared as David talks about COVID and how he's thinking about early stage investment landscape today during these times, and I think it provides real value. David previously came on the podcast and is episode number 35 if you want to listen to more of him. Without further ado, here's David. When a company has co-founders, how should those co-founders think about their own relationships? I think there's a combination of what I call like the hard skills and the soft skills, right? So, you know, one of the things that you want to ensure are that not only individually is each team member, you know, high powered, smart, an expert in something, but that you also want to make sure that they're all complementary to one another, right? And that the, the sum is greater than the parts. I guess the second thing is that, right, again, you want to make sure that all individually are high integrity, high valued people, right, curious, thirst for learning. They're not sort of uh, me players. They're more team players. And then, two, you want to make sure that their work styles um, are complementary to one another. Now, I think there's this interesting concept around, like, the word culture gets used a lot on a team. And I think if you rewound a couple of years ago, culture would mean like all people believing in the same thing, right? They all have the same style, the same culture, likely same demographics and same socioeconomics. Um, whereas now we're probably seeing that they need to all be aligned around some core values, but there's actually tremendous value around diversity of background, diversity of thought. Um, so I think to answer your question directly, right, it's really understanding and make sure that they have defined internally and aligned on what their core values are, and then pushing on what are the processes, whether it's internally, operationally, how they hire, and how they're thinking about making sure they instill those values going on. One of the best ways that we do it is understanding either the most recent hires or upcoming hires, how they're sourcing candidates, how they're writing those job specs what they're looking for, what those interview processes look like. It's a good way to really surface sort of both the good habits and the red flags that you see there. 
What are some of your current thoughts on the pre-seed and seed space? So pre-seed and seed, pre-seed is a pretty new term. Um, it's not so black and white, right? We consider pre-seed really where you're raising probably under a million and a half dollars. Um, you are likely pre-revenue or have maybe, you know, sub 25K of monthly revenue. And the real test we use is that putting it all together, we think that you're going to need to raise a true seed round of let's call it two to three and a half million dollars at some point in the next 18 months. Like we don't think you have enough time, runway, or it's even the plan to get all the way to series A metrics. Now the truth is not every company, not every company raises uh, all three rounds, right? A pre-seed, a seed, and a series A. You know, if you have an exit, if you have the right background, you're probably skipping pre-seed and going right to seed. So we don't really bucket it where we make a certain amount of investments in pre-seed, certain amount of investments in seed. What we actually do is we underwrite a minimum ownership that we're going to need to get by series A and try and understand the probability of the paths that you're going to have to go down and how we kind of think about um, when to put in our dollars and when the right risk reward is, you know, dollars in versus ownership out. How do you think about portfolio construction? I think portfolio construction is one of those interesting terms that most folks don't really learn about until you kind of get in the weeds, you know, working at a fund or managing a fund. It's super important. At a base level, it's around sort of the economic construction of your portfolio. So just making sure that you have, you know, the right number of investments, that you're getting the right ownership, that you're staggered across potentially geographies sectors some some funds stagger across stages others are more concentrated like us just in seed stage you know making sure you have the right follow-ons it's basically running running an effective model out so if you have the basic distribution of a power law venture portfolio and if you need me to dig into that let me know that you will then have the sort of fund returning qualities that you expect right there's many inexperienced who don't really understand that. And then they say, well, I hit this unicorn and hit this great investment, but then you add it all up and you don't have the right dollars in at the right stage and right valuation. And ultimately you're not delivering the cash on cash returns, which is ultimately the only thing that matters to your stakeholders. At the early stages, when there isn't a ton of metrics to go off of, how do you think about investing in the product over the founder or the founder over the product? It's tough. I, I can't imagine investing when I have sort of a strong opinion against what they're building. Uh, that would be a very high hurdle to get over. Now, I would not need to believe in every single decision and like product variation that the founder does. Uh, I think ultimately there's like call it betting on the jockey, uh, not on the horse. While I don't need to really fully believe in everything that the current iteration of the product is, you need to believe not just in the person, but that that person understands their specific market really, really well, that they're either A, making the right product decisions, or B, if they're not, they'll learn that and get that feedback very quickly and make that second move in a smart and efficient manner. Okay. Sort of the, the basis of, of founder market fit. I don't really believe in you're just a smart entrepreneur you can build anything and find a great solution. I believe in having some kind of competitive advantage or unique insight into the specific market that you're tackling. Um, it's also, you know, to answer your question a bit more directly, the earlier that we look at investing, 
the uh, sort of wider we're willing to go in believing in the current iteration of the product. Due to COVID, how are you thinking about the health and fitness space? So COVID aside, right, there's, there's this interesting dynamic in fitness that you see in a couple industries where it's a massive, massive market, but it's also sort of like massively crowded and highly funded. And so like the ideal landscape is you have a massive market that is not penetrated yet. The worst case scenario is a small market that's massively penetrated. Like those are easy decisions. Like definitely yes, definitely no. The question is in the other two segments of the quadrant, what if you have a small market, but it's a blue ocean? Or if you have a massive market that has a lot of competitors, but it's not winner take all and you could have multiple winners. That's how I consider fitness. So I think you're going to have a couple of big winners, but I think most of them are probably in the market already. Like you're already seeing in like the equipment, home fitness space, Peloton, Tonal, a couple of the row companies, Mirror. I mean, these are companies with tens of millions, if not hundreds of millions of funding behind them. And like, this is not like a piece of software where you're going to try a bunch out. Like if you bought your Peloton, you're not then just going to buy a second and a third machine. So I think it's hard. Now, what traditional gym life looks like, I don't know. I'm pretty pessimistic around what that looks like. And I think the shift to in-home uh, is real. And, and it'll go backwards a little bit from here, but I think that catalyst will remain. And you'll start seeing some hybrid concepts, right? Where maybe it's offering, you know, in the gym, private type of space using their equipment, or maybe they'll come out with their own in-home equipment. I, I don't know what it's going to look like. But I don't think you're going to see this bifurcation where you're either like a gym or a single purpose company. I think you're going to need to expand. Everybody's going to need to meet in the middle, if you will. What are some indicators for early product market fit? The first disclaimer I'll give is that I think sort of this phrase product market fit is is 80% bullshit. I don't think it's this like magical thing that you either have or don't have. Um, what we look for early and what I would consider product market fit are two things, right? One is sort of a true love of a product by your core group of users. And depending on the type of product, that could be engagement rates on a software type company. It could be repurchase rates if you're looking at a consumer good. And the second thing is early indicators of scale. Right. So you have like your base metrics of your core users and then early indications that you started to scale sort of some of your paid spend across multiple channels and your metrics seem to be holding. How should founders think about the pivot or when they should be considering a pivot versus persevering through what they currently are building? I think it's, it's an interesting question. You know, I, I kind of think about it similar to hiring, right, where sort of hire slow, fire fast, right? So I would make sure that you're fully informed in the in the decision, right? Make sure that it is data-driven, that you're understanding the data and the insights behind it. But once you decide that you're gonna make a move, like pull that Band-Aid really, really quickly and run really fast in that direction. There's no time to, you know, second guess or run multiple strategies. What are the pros and cons of raising money from a family office versus a venture capital fund? I think a family office can be really solid complementary capital. 
I'm obviously biased here, but I've been on both sides of the table. And I do think there is real value to having a true institutional partner who has done this before, who dedicates their full-time job and their entire team towards working with companies and living in this ecosystem. Now, family offices, again, they come in every different flavor. And there's some family offices that just because they don't have outside capital, they act and run like institutional venture firms. You have others who kind of come and go with markets. Now, where I've actually seen family offices be most helpful is when they basically look like strategic corporate VC firms, right? So maybe a family office made all of their money. Um, you know, maybe the family made their money selling a giant retailer. And now they focus most of their investments on, you know, either retail technology or CPG goods. And they can plug you in very quickly into their ecosystem. So would I want them leading an early stage round? Probably not, because there's all the basic startup stuff and fundraising that needs to be done. But I think they're a great complementary strategic partner where they can come in with a mercenary-like approach and help you do one or two things really, really well. When I think about traditional VC, we're good at helping across the board, but going shallow, whereas a strategic is really good at narrow but deep. What's the current landscape and how are you thinking about investing in DNVBs? So first question, DNVBs, I, I don't think it's a secret that that is a somewhat out of favor uh, category to invest in right now. Um, and I think, you know, and maybe it's overreactive, but you've just seen some of these companies struggle as they grow. Um, and you haven't seen the multiples and, and specifically sort of the tech multiples that they're given in the early stage of their life hold, you know, either IPO and you can look at someone like Casper or even in some of these growth rounds. And so, you know, I, I can't think of that many billion dollar plus exits in the DNVB world, right? I mean, I, I don't know if anybody here has one or two. I think, you know, Drunk Elephant, you know, as a beauty company was probably around 800 million. Dollar Shave Club was a billion, but that hasn't done well post-acquisition. Casper had a big down round with their IPO. So I think people are, are getting worried about that category. And I think there's been a shift, one, in early stage valuations of those companies. I think the prevailing thought is you can build big companies, but maybe not multi-billion dollar companies. So it's important to get high ownership early on. And then two, it's important to have a strategy that's capital efficient. There's a big difference between raising $200 million to get to a four to $500 million exit and raising $30 million to even get to a $200 million exit. And so I just think you're getting a, a different mindset. We, we saw similar characteristics in companies that had like brick and mortar four wall models, kind of like WeWork and some of those others, the sweet greens, the soul cycles, you know, given tech multiples up front and now sort of getting a bit of a, a reality check. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just to double yeah. double click on that first uh, point real quick. Do you think it makes sense then for um, venture capitalists to kind of look at these businesses as they de-risk their business model, i.e., uh, build more um, kind of market share, grow revenue, um, show capital efficiency and uh, sustainability, or is it just out of favor? You think in general for the next kind of you know it's next a little bit of, of investing. It's a little bit of both. Um, okay. There are still investments definitely happening, you know, but showing that you have the strategy and ideally the experience navigating a lot of those things that you're talking about, right? So one, you know, 
three years ago, the thought of a DNVB going to retail, you know, before Series D was kind of unheard of. Now you're seeing some of these companies launch, you know, or at least Series A, think about retail as an omni-channel approach because acquisition costs directly are just getting too high. You're also seeing companies uh, increase their SKU base much quicker, right? So instead of having one hero product for three to four years, you're starting to see a much uh, more accelerated expansion roadmap, getting to your second, third, fourth product, you know, in your first year of business. So you can be positive margin uh, for every customer you acquire. Thank you very much, David, for your time. You can feel free to follow David on Twitter at David R. Goldberg. If you could please leave a review on the Apple Podcast app as it helps other folks find it, that would really be helpful. If you have a question you'd like to hear VCs or founders answer on the show, you can DM me and follow me on Twitter at Mike Gelb. You can also follow for episode announcements at ConsumerVC. For all episodes, please visit theconsumervc.com. Thanks again for listening, folks, and please stay safe.